Good morning, everybody. My name is Jacob Parnell. I'm one of the ministers here at the Tri-Valley Church. We are in a series, as I mentioned earlier, called Death and Dying, where we want to have a healthy understanding of uh, what happens when you die. What, what is death? What, what is dying about? What happens afterward for the believer? And we have covered topics like the resurrection. A few weeks ago, we talked about heaven. And this morning, we're going to focus more on the... Uh, our side of things. When somebody dies, what is the Christian response? We're going to talk specifically about the Christian funeral. So, here we go. When somebody dies, for as long as humans have existed, there has been this need to do something. We ought to do something. Something should happen now, right? So we should say something. Some of the earliest graves that have been discovered by anthropologists, thousands of years old, reveal evidence of flowers that have been placed on the body that was laid to rest. Or they found bodies that have been arranged in family units, mothers and fathers laid to rest in one another's arms, sometimes adorned with uh, delicate handcrafted beads. And this shows that for as long as humans have been around, we have been asking this question. What next? What do we do? What is the response when somebody dies? Burial practices and funerary rites have changed throughout history and culture, but this one question remains the same. What do we do? What's the appropriate response? And there seems to be this consistent understanding that death is something serious that needs to be responded to respectfully and with a certain awe and wonder about what, if anything, happens next. And the same is true of today. People today do the same thing. Whatever your religious beliefs, whatever your backgrounds, People have this same feeling, this, what do we do next? What should happen? What's the something that should be the response? And what we do when somebody dies is something of a combination of things that we believe about life or about the afterlife, and also just things that we've seen other people do. With other funerals that we've attended, funeral practices, like anything else, kind of has trends that, that change throughout history. But our part of having a healthy understanding of death and dying is knowing how we as a church should respond when somebody dies. And so this morning we are going to let Paul's words from 1 Thessalonians 4 guide us to a faithful Christian response when somebody dies. So if you will read along with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to begin down in verse 13. Paul writes this to his beloved Thessalonian church. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Reading a New Testament letter is kind of like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You may have experienced this. You, you, you hear things that are said, but you don't hear the response. 
Sometimes when you read a letter from the New Testament, you hear Paul's words and instructions, but you aren't sure why he's writing them. Maybe they ask something. Maybe they sent word through a messenger or through a, another letter that we don't have a record of, and we sort of have to, have to piece together what exactly the full conversation is. But it seems like there's one concern among the church about what will happen to Christians who have died regarding the second coming of Jesus. People who, who have been found in Christ. They've committed their lives to Jesus Christ. But then they died. They passed away. Are they going to miss out on this? Is, are they still included when, when Jesus returns? Are they going to be raised as well? And Paul tells them, yes, they are going to be okay. Don't worry about them. They're not going to be overlooked. In fact, the dead in Christ, according to this, are going to be the ones that are going to rise first. Paul's reference here to the resurrection of the dead is consistent to what he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, Paul is in Corinth when he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. And then the, the exposition that he gives on the resurrection that we studied a few weeks ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's something that uh, he would have written to the Thessalonian church maybe just a couple years after the Thessalonians. It might have been them asking about this very topic that prompted him to teach so much on that. So if you are thankful that we have such a, a, a teaching that's, that's so thorough in 1 Corinthians 15, you have the Thessalonians to thank. If you want, right now, go ahead and say, thank you, Thessalonians. <laughs> All right. They probably can't hear you, but uh, it's nice of you to say anyway. Well, the reason Paul teaches on this, he says, is because he does not want them to be uninformed, which is a double negative way of saying he does want them to be informed about the concerns that they have. But also, he writes, so that they do not grieve like the rest of the world who have no hope. In other words, Paul wants Christians to know that they are different. That their response to death is going to be different than those who don't have hope in Christ. This difference, this Christians being different, is a theme that resonates throughout Christianity. And it doesn't just apply to their views on death, although we're going to look at some of those in just a minute. Uh, in a talk that was given right here in the Bay Area last fall, Tim Keller, he came and he gave this awesome talk about sharing your faith, about Christian evangelism. And mixed in with that talk, there was this just this little brief section that kind of, if you wouldn't pay attention to it, it went by somewhat quickly. But I think it's worth holding on to. It's about how Christians in the first century stood out, how they were different. In a lot of ways, they, they stuck out like a sore thumb because of the faith that they had in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How they lived their life uh, was determined by their new belief in Jesus. And just for a minute this morning, I want to take a ton of time with this, but I want to list these things that Keller shared because they're worth noting. Christians were different in a society uh, that didn't always accept Christ in some very noticeable ways. One, their integrity. They were known, they had reputations for being honest and fair dealing and transparent. Two, Christians were known for their generosity. Three, their hospitality, something that Paul mentions in the letter to the first Thessalonians. Uh, they were sharing their homes with one another. They shared their possessions. You can go to Acts chapter 2 and see a couple examples of this. Sympathy is another way that they were different and the way that they stood out. They were not ruthless in business and in relationships. They were unusually willing to forgive and to sacrifice. Another way that they stood out was chastity. This is sexual purity and monogamy. They were known for this. Why are you doing that? That's not required. You can get away with not doing these things. And Christians were saying, well, our dedication to Christ puts us in this position. This is how we want to be. 
And people thought that was weird. Handling adversity. You think about the martyrs uh, and the Christian's attitude toward suffering, knowing that standing out for Christ may have negative impact on their life and their social, social situation, but being willing to be in Christ anyway. The church of the early centuries was multi-ethnic, too. And you might hear that and go, well, a lot of things are multi-ethnic. But this one takes, this is worth explaining for a moment. Back in the ancient world, who you worshipped and who your gods were kind of depend on where you were from. Uh, you worshipped the gods of your tribe. You worshipped the gods of your family. It was strange for there to be this Jesus that anybody is welcome to worship. You can be a Jew. You can be a Gentile. You can be a man. You can be a woman. You can be rich. You can be poor. You can be from there. You can be from here. Christ is open to all. This was new, and it was strange, and it made Christians stand out. Christians of the early church were very pro-life. They did not believe in infanticide or abortion, both which were very common in the ancient world. And the way that they demonstrated that was by going to the trash heaps where people who had babies that they didn't want would leave out in the elements. They would be left exposed and they would die. Or they would be scooped up by sex traffickers to be raised in slavery and used for somebody's advantages. Christians didn't think that this was right. And the way that they demonstrated their pro-lifeness was not squawking about it on Facebook, but they got up and they did something about it. They took these babies into their homes and they raised them in Christian love. That's pro-life. Christians were committed to the poor. Christians were non-retaliatory. And this is what made them stand out in society. And like I said before, how they responded to death was another way that Christians stood out. One of the common burial practices when somebody would die in the first century was to put a coin in the mouth of the deceased person. Nod your head if you've heard about this before. You put the coin in their mouth, and this is supposed to be the, the toll for the ferryman to carry you across the, the river Styx or, or wherever, however it is that you're getting to the underworld. It's sort of like a, a tip to make sure that your soul gets there. Well, Christians kind of adapted this practice, but instead of putting a coin in the deceased's mouth, they put the Eucharist the bread of life, saying, the body of Christ is all you'll need to sustain you on your journey. Mourning and wailing was another common funeral practice in the, uh, the time of the early church. People would actually hire professional mourners to, to weep and wail outside of their gates or to follow them around and do the mourning for you as though to tell everybody, somebody has died and we're going to wail and moan and grieve about this. Well, what Paul says here to the, first, uh, to the Thessalonian church is grieving is going to happen when somebody dies. Grief is natural and grief is understandable. But what he says is grieve, yes, but not without the larger view of Christ's power over death. In the fourth century, John Chrysostom writes this, Christ wept over Lazarus, so weep, but gently, but with decency, but with the fear of God. So if you weep, you do so, not but disbelieving the resurrection, but as not enduring the separation. He says, think about it like this. We weep even those who are leaving us and departing to foreign lands, and yet we do not do this as despairing. So weep as though you were sending someone on his way to another land. Another way that Christians stood out in their response to death was that instead of singing the funeral dirges or the mournful songs that would accompany funeral processions in the ancient world, Christians began singing hymns to believers when they were on their deathbed, 
or during the wake or during the funeral processions at the burial site as a reminder that because Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. And the last difference that I'll point out, and there were several others, the last one I'll mention this morning is instead of covering the deceased with supplies that they would need in the afterlife, your, your jewels, your, your wealth, um, sometimes if, if infants died, they would put toys and things in their caskets. Christians didn't do that. Christians simply covered the body with prayer. And Tom Long, who writes about the history of the Christian funeral, he says, Christians believed that they were taking their dead, not to their final resting place, but to the place of departure, the point of embarkation as the deceased traveled to God. And so, the purpose of the funeral for Christians was to accompany the believer to their next leg of their lifelong journey to God. Just as we have journeyed with one another together, following Christ in this life, so we continue escorting our brother or our sister on their journey to be with God after their death. The actions and the symbols of the Christian funeral, gathering together, singing psalms and hymns, prayers, the Eucharist, reminders of Christ's victory over death, all of these things enact the story of salvation. This was the early church. This is how the Christian funeral developed when Christianity was new. Christian funeral honored the life of the deceased, and it was also therapeutic for those who were present. But this was not the primary purpose of the funeral. These things were not the primary focus. The primary focus was Christ. And it was for believers to be informed about the hope of resurrection for those in Christ and for them to have the opportunity to practice good grief. As we think about this, how do we measure up? How do we respond when somebody dies. I think modern Christian funerals sometimes get this backwards. Our modern signs and symbols sometimes show that we think that the main focus of a funeral is to honor the deceased and to do things that will help us feel better. Now again, nothing wrong with feeling better. Nothing wrong with honoring the deceased. I think these things can and should happen at a Christian funeral. But if we make them our main goal, we risk leaving behind the hope that we have in Christ. If we make these things the central focus, we might say nothing at all of Jesus' victory over death, of his resurrection, of our resurrection hope as well in Christ. And this is something we need to be careful not to do. Just as with anything in our lives, and especially major events in our lives, we don't want to run the risk of leaving Christ out. This happens sometimes at weddings. Sometimes a wedding can focus so much on flowers and photos, and it happens at the expense of acknowledging marriage as a God-ordained sacrament, as a holy intersection of heaven and earth coming together. We do that, and it does a disservice to everyone involved. We don't want funerals to be like this either. Now at this point, you may be rolling your eyes and saying, Jacob, of course you're going to say that. That sounds like preacher talk. Preachers are always up there talking about how Christ should be the center of everything. You've got to involve Christ in every area of your life. And I'll give you that one. That's true. That's, that's, that's what preachers sound like. <laughs> we do talk a lot about Christ being involved in everything. But I want to ask, is that, do I say that because I'm a preacher? Or am I reading this right? Do I say that because this sounds like Jesus? Does this sound like Paul and the instructions that he gives in his New Testament letters? 
I think Paul certainly writes like somebody who has surrendered everything to Jesus Christ and is just trying to figure out what that means. What does that look like? What does that mean for a wedding? What does that mean for a funeral? What does that mean for my job? What does that mean for my day-to-day existence? What does it mean to be in Christ? And a lot of the things that he writes about are the insights that he has and his personal experience. And he says, I found a good way. I found what it means to live in Christ. This is what I'm doing. Maybe you could do this as well. The churches that he starts, they're doing the same thing. Jesus is Lord. He's raised. Okay, what now? I don't know. This is brand new. There's never been a church before. There's never been this resurrection hope in Jesus Christ before. What do we do? That's what we get in the New Testament. People figuring things out, passing on this good advice. His letters are letters of instruction, and they're letters of encouragement for how Christians ought to do the same. And 1 Thessalonians is a cool one of these letters. I was studying this this week and just thinking, this is a good letter. Some of the letters that Paul writes uh, are kind of angry. Some of them come off as sounding really frustrated, as though like, oh, how long am I going to have to put up with you guys? How many times do I have to say this? How many times do I have to encourage you not to do the same things wrong over and over again? But the church in Thessalonica had a special place in Paul's heart. It seemed like they were doing a lot of things right. Or maybe he was just really weary from a lot of people getting it wrong, that they were this bright spot, that they were taking his advice, that they were living in Christ. They were not abandoning their faith. And Paul writes this letter, and as you read the first chapter, you get the heart that he has for this church. He's saying, you guys, you guys are making me proud. And the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians reads kind of like a good report card. He's telling them, man, you guys, you're getting it right. Sticking with Christ, you get an A. Turning away from idols, you get an A in that department too hospitality, you get an A. I've received your hospitality, and now you have a reputation for good hospitality. A's across the board. Good job, Thessalonians. Everybody say, good job, Thessalonians. Again, they they probably can't hear you, but that's nice of you to say. You guys are very encouraging. With that in mind, Paul's good report card to the Thessalonian church, I want to take the last few minutes of the message this morning and present to you guys Tri-Valley's good report card, especially when it comes to responding to death and funerals. So, you ready? There's five categories that uh, you're going to get grades on. First category is prayer. You guys get an F. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Wouldn't that be bad? (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Let's see what it actually is. Okay, good. You got an A. You get an A in the prayer department. Uh, this, like I said, this is a praying church. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. We sent cards to people, cards of encouragement. Phone calls are made. Encouraging messages are given. Whether or not you receive those things and somebody you know and love passes away, you can be assured that if the church knows about it, people from this congregation are going to be on their knees praying for peace and comfort and rest and good grief. Sometimes people will pray without even knowing. They'll pray for people that they've never met before. You say the name of somebody who knows somebody else, and they'll be on their knees praying for them. I am thankful for the prayer ethic that this church has. So good job, Tri-Valley. You earned your A. Turn to somebody next to you and say, good job. Category number two, funerals. The actual funeral itself. You guys get an A in doing funerals as well. 
Funerals are something that Tri-Valley Church does well. When somebody dies, we go into action, and we take care of details. We take care of people. Imagine this, and maybe you've experienced this. When somebody dies, people are at a loss. Grief overcomes you. You don't want to do anything, but there's all these things in life telling you, oh, now, now there's the burial they have to worry about. Now there's details. Now there's gathering. Now there's making announcements. Now there's communicating. It can be overwhelming. I have seen this church spring into action and love on families by trying to make that process a lot easier because this church knows what to do when somebody dies. We have a number among us who were shown that kind of care and support and so that when somebody else is in need of it, they know what to do as well and they understand how valuable it is to have the support of the church there. I have learned a lot in the nine years that I've been at this congregation on how a funeral should go and what the Christian response to death and dying is. Another thing that happens, and this isn't the purpose of the funeral, but this is just sort of a, a, a happy side effect, is that a lot of people get reconnected to the church after attending a funeral from here. There have pe been people who have been away for a while or who live in other or towns or things, but they get reconnected, and they get reconnected to the body. They may start worshiping with us again. They may renew their relationship with the Lord because of an encounter that they had from a funeral that Tri-Valley has hosted. Um, and this is a good thing. Sometimes people from the congregation decide not to go to funerals. And it's understandable sometimes. We, we say things to ourselves or to others like, I, I don't really know what my being there would contribute. Or I didn't really know the person very well. Or if I saw the family members, I, I don't really know what it is I would say to them. And if that's ever been a thought that you've had, I just want to say this morning, come anyway. Come anyway. Sometimes the best thing that you can do for someone is just being there. If you can't think of the right thing to say, that's good. Don't say anything at all. Say what you need to say with your presence. Show up and sing the songs of hope in Christ. Sign the guest book. Those actions are more powerful than anything you could come up with to say anyway. Come anyway and be uh, a peaceful, loving presence of Christ in these people's lives. That brings us to number three, sensitivity uh, when somebody dies. And Tri-Valley, good news, you get an A in this category as well. Because when someone dies, you don't say things like, well, it's all part of God's plan. And you don't say things like, well, God just needed another angel up in heaven. And you don't say these things because you know that these things are both not true and they're also not helpful. And even though you know that Christians have hope in the resurrection, you don't try to cheer people up or force them to look on the bright side. Instead, you give people room to grieve. Instead, you say things like, I love you, or I'm praying for you. Good job, Tri-Valley. Next category, journeying together. What? What does that have to do with it? Well, let me explain this one. If a funeral is the living escorting the deceased believer to their next destination, just in the same way that we accompany one another on our journey of faith in this life, then this one implies that we are doing the current journeying together well. So that's why this one is up there. This is journeying together. And let's see what you guys got here. Oh, uh, that's an incomplete. Uh, not to say that we don't journey with one another well. This is actually something we've been talking about uh, this year a little bit, if you recall. 
there are pockets in this congregation where we love each other very well, where we're connected to one another, where we journey in life together. But we've pointed out in our series in January, there, there are some points of disconnection. There are some areas in the church where we say our love for one another is more implied than it is realized, and we want to continuously be working on this. And so this is not an F, this is not a bad grade, this is just, it's a work in progress, and I can't, we can't make a determination yet, because this is something we're continuing to do better, and we're striving to achieve this. And I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 13, where he says, let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So we get an incomplete on that one. But it's not a almost, almost failed incomplete. It's a maybe we're on the right path. So continuing on there. The last category on your report card is hope. In Tri-Valley, you get an A in hope because you have hope in the resurrection. And we've seen in this study that the resurrection might not be what we thought. And as we continue to study this topic, we realize the resurrection might not be what we currently think because it is something unlike we've experienced. We can know a little bit, but I think we're going to be very surprised with our experience of it. It is something of a mystery. But Tri-Valley, you believe that because of the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, death does not have the final word. You have hope that Jesus will not leave us and not forsake us. And you have hope that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we too will rise. You have hope that death gives way to life. And that's where I want to end this morning. We can have the praise team come on back up here and help us get ready to lead us in this song of hope. But I want to close by mentioning this. In the first century Jewish world, there was a, a tradition. If there was a funeral entourage that was making its way to the burial site with the body, and there, there were mourners, and they were walking along, let's say they were, they were going on this road, and they came across a wedding procession, this funeral funeral uh, parade, wedding parade. If they encounter each other, one of them's got to go first. The tradition was that the funeral procession would give way to the wedding procession, partly out of respect for the bride, but also as a symbol showing that death has to give way to life. And I think that this is a good image for the Christian funeral. Life trumps death. There's victory over death through Jesus Christ. And when we gather for a Christian funeral, we escort the person to their next destination of life. And we do not grieve like those who have no hope, but we hold firmly to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ.